0: Good morning, Chapelwood family and friends who are joining us. This morning, as Pastor Dan told you earlier, we are going to be in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible with you, the blue Bible in front of you, it should be on page 524. And if you don't have a Bible, now you do. That blue Bible is yours. Our gift to you. We want you to take it, to have it, and to read it. One note this morning before we get started, the text will be on the screen while I read it, but during the sermon it will not. So please keep your Bibles open so you can look back at the text as we walk through it. Psalm 51. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, for I would give it, for you will, will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight. In right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Psalm 51 is among the most well-known and possibly most written about psalms. It ranks up there with Psalm 23. And similar to Psalm 23, which is another one of David's most popular hits, it resonates with all of us. That's why it's so written about and so talked about. It resonates with all of us. Psalm 23 fills our minds and connects with us about our desire for hope and darkness. But then Psalm 51 resonates with us in a completely different way. It resonates with us because of our guilt And our shame and our fear from sin. In this psalm, we read painful words. We read remorseful words, sorrowful words of a sinner. The superscript, the little text at the top before verse one, explains to us kind of the context of this psalm. Where did where did these words come from? Well, it comes from when a man named Nathan went to David, the king of Israel. If you're not familiar with the story later on, you can go back to 2 Samuel 11 and read what happens in his sin and then 2 Samuel 12 and read how Nathan approaches him. But here we get to hear what David's response is to being confronted about his sin. Just a quick update of what that was, what his sin was, is that David is the star of Israel, right? He's the golden boy. He is the king that everyone's been hoping for and waiting for all throughout the Bible. From Genesis 3.15 forward, we are looking for a guy like David. God even says, he's a man after my own heart. God makes a covenant relationship with David. He is a special man. But then, David reveals that he is a sinner just like you and me. David sees a woman bathing on a roof one evening When he should have been off at war, he inquires about her. He finds out she is already married, and then he sleeps with her anyway. A child is conceived, and so he tries to trick her husband. He gets him drunk. He goes as far as he can to trick her husband into thinking the child's his. And when that doesn't work, he tells his general to make sure her husband, Uriah, is put in the worst part of battle, the battle that David should be at, but he's not going to go. Put Uriah in the worst part to make sure he dies, and he does. Da- David steals a man's wife, commits adultery, and murders a man. He's a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer. Psalm 50, 50 right before this, explains thieves and adulterers are among wicked. That is David. These are the words of a sinner, friends. And these are the words of you and of me this morning. This resonates with us because we do sin. In reality, we all have, we all do, and we all will continue to sin and struggle with sin. Maybe you have sinned how David has sinned in ways that plague your conscience. Maybe you're just plagued by your sin because it just won't go away and you're stuck in it. Maybe you've, seen, you've sinned like David and you've seen how it just snowballs. He does one thing and he has to cover it up with another lie and he has to cover it up with another sin and another sin. No matter how you connect with David, friends, you can see and you can hear your own words in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 confronts us with the true nature of our sin. But it also comforts us with the nature and power of our God to cleanse us from our sin. The takeaway from Psalm 51 is abundantly clear. We've been talking about it all morning. Friends, we must confess. That's the takeaway. But the picture of God in Psalm 51 adds a can in front of that must. You can and must confess your sins. Because God is ready to cleanse you and to create in you a new heart. You can and must confess your sins because God stands ready to cleanse you and create in you a new heart. So do you feel dirty from your sin? Psalm 51 is for you. Do you want your heart to change? You wanna hate your sin and love God? Psalm 51 is for you. You can confess your sins because God is ready to answer you, cleanse you, and create in you a new heart. So to see this invitation to confession, we're gonna break the psalm into three sections. First, we are going to see sin's utter filthiness. Second, we will see God's ultimate cleansing. And then lastly, we'll end with some remarks concerning salvation's unmatched joy. Sin's utter filthiness, God's ultimate cleansing, and some notes on salvation's unmatched joy. First to the bad news, sin's utter filthiness. If we're honest, we like to tame our sin, don't we? We like to water it down, make it more bearable, And in doing so, we like to ignore the consequences of it and what it truly is. We might say things like, well, I sin, but I don't do that sin. Or I sin, but I don't do their sin. It's not that bad. I'm not like them. You hear what we're doing? We're negating the reality of sin, and we're just comparing it. We try to cover it up. But in Psalm 51, like I said, we are confronted with it, with what it truly is. David paints a picture here of sin in the most true way. From verses 1 to 6, we see his confession. And in his confession, he shows us in three ways the filthiness of sin. First, he highlights the filthiness of sin by describing what it is is, what it is. Right at the top of verses one and two, David calls sin transgression, iniquity, and sin. We're familiar with the third one, maybe not the first two. But all of these three words together, is he just being poetic? Is this just a way for him to be emphatic? No, he's trying to tell us something about what he's done and what sin is. All three of these terms emphasize personal, willful rebellion. It is rebellion. It is a picture of a child who plants their foot and says, no, that's what a transgression is. An iniquity is straying from what we're told to do, saying, no, not that way, this way. A sin is not hitting the mark we're told to, but hitting the mark on the other side of the wall because we want to. It is rebellion, And to make matters worse, this isn't rebellion against an earthly king. It isn't rebellion against some kind of impersonal universe. This is rebellion against God himself. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David confesses that his sin is ultimately a rebellion against God. Now, does he mean that he didn't sin against anybody else? Absolutely not. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his wife. He sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against all of Israel. He's supposed to be their king and represent them. He has sinned against all of these people, but his sin is ultimately Against God. Because it's in God's image that all of these people are made. These people are God's people. And he's taking what is God's and saying, I'm gonna treat it how I wanna treat it. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. God, you don't own this. I do. That is what his sin is. And that's why his sin is ultimately against the God who put him in authority to be king. David's sin and all of our sin is primarily and ultimately against the Lord. So whatever we want to call sin, friends, we don't like to call it this, right? We'll say it's missing the mark, and we'd mean by that, you know, I was supposed to do this, and I didn't quite get there, so I sinned. Or we'll say it's wrong, but we don't understand it too often. We don't understand it as rebellion against God. But we need to understand, Christian and non-Christian, your sin is as serious as treason. It is an act of rebellion. It's saying, God, my way is better. God, my understanding is right. God, you are wrong. God, be quiet. That's what sin is. That's the utter filthiness of sin. Second, in these verses, we see the filthiness of sin because of what sin does. It gets even worse. It's not just what it is, it's what it does. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Friends, it plagues David's conscience. It is constantly in front of him. He can't get it out of his mind. He can't escape it. In verse 8, he says, the Lord has broken his bones. In verse 15, he asks the Lord to open his lips because he can't open his own lips. That is what his sin has done. It's weighing and crushing him. Imagine if you had a pair of sunglasses that you can never take off. If you're outside, that might not sound too bad. But if you want to see the sunrise and all of its beauty, it's going to be tinted. If you want to see all of nature, if you want to see your family, it's going to be tinted. If you want to see the beauty of a sunset, it's going to be tinted. Sin is always in David's mind, and it's tinting and changing how he can enjoy and see everything. And while this internal havoc is awful, the relational toll is devastating. Ultimately, what sin does is it removes us from the presence of God. All of this washing language. He says, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me, purge me, wash me. He's drawing it from Leviticus. Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. And in, that, in those two chapters, what, what the law of Moses is prescribing is how lepers are to be treated and must be cleansed. Lepers must leave God's people and leave God's presence. They cannot be in the camp and worship him at the tabernacle until they are cleansed. And David is saying his sin is like leprosy. He must be cleansed from it. It has removed him from God's people, and it has removed him from being able to worship God. He cannot be in his presence. It's highlighted then in verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is worried that just like the Spirit of God left Saul because Saul sinned, he made some bad sacrifices, he would not listen to God, he remained in his sin. God took his Spirit from him. He's seen this, he knows this happened. And to be clear, what are they talking about, the Spirit leaving them? In the Old Testament, The Spirit of God would rest upon certain people, specifically kings, and it marked them as this is God's king for his people, and it empowered them to do that role. So He's afraid that God is going to strip him from the role in which he has placed him. He's gonna take him away. He's not going to use him as he has said he would. This is the ugliest reality of sin. For the non-Christian, it removes you from God's presence you are barred from God. And for the Christian, it strains your fellowship with God. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. The final aspect of sin's filthiness we see is what sin shows. What it is, what it does, and what it shows. David confesses his sin and how badly he needs cleansing from it, and then he realizes it's not just what he's done. There's an internal issue. Look at verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not talking poorly about his mother here. He's not talking about an illegitimate birth. He's talking about himself and his own nature and something that his sin reveals about who he is. He's declaring that his, his, the problem is not just that he has sinned or sinned, it is that he has a problem that propels his sin. There is something inside of him that is propelling his sin. It's his nature, it's who he is. It is one of sinfulness. This is why Paul in Ephesians two, he talks of us, Christians, before you were in Christ, you were what? Children of wrath. You were born to in, knowing how and wanting to sin. You may have heard Pastor Dan in some sermons talk about our wanters. I think it's a very helpful word. David's saying his wanters are broken. What he wants is wrong. It's not what God wants. What's God want? Verse six, God wants truth in the inward being. He wants your heart to love truth, meaning to love him. But David wants everything other than what God wants. David wants everything other than what God is. He wants his truth. His wanters are broken. This is why, while children are cute and adorable, we don't have to teach them how to sin, do we? You have to teach them how to not sin. That should be telling, right? (laughs) You don't have to teach kids how to sin. My children are very good at showing me that they like to look out for themselves. It's my toy. It's my way. There's the foot being planted and the no coming out, and it's like, okay. I didn't have to teach you this. I'm not saying she didn't learn it from me, but I didn't have to teach her. I didn't have to teach him. If you don't think sin is natural, you can just hang out with some kids. We can hang out with my kids, and my wife and I can go out. And, and when we come back, we'll debrief about it, and you can tell me like your evaluation, um, and we'll talk, talk about the doctrine of original sin. The truth here is apparent, not just in in scripture, but God has blessed us with putting it before us in life. Our children show us that sin is natural, and it's natural in all of us. We are dirty, and so I wanna pause here for a minute and consider the weight of all these truths, these three truths, what sin is, what it does, and what it shows. Like I said before we started, this psalm confronts us. It should confront us with the truth of sin. To you who would say you are not a Christian, do you understand what sin is? In the world, it's painted as a lot of different things. Maybe it's an outdated, antiquated, kind of moral system, right? It's a way to teach our kids morals so they know what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. I read an article a couple weeks ago, um, actually by a Hoosier, but for New York Times, and she's talking about how she's raised her kids without the concept of sin, I taught them to be honest and to care about justice and to do good things, and they don't even know what the word sin means. Friends, sin is not a concept and it's not a point system. Sin is a nature and a chasm between you and God. And sin, as David says here in verse 4, results in judgment, just judgment from God. Sin is not a concept. And for you, Christian, many of us need to be awakened to the true filthiness of our sin. We are we are way too laxadaisical about sin in our lives. Too easily we brush off the filth of sin with humor, personality traits, or just comparing it to others. Sin is not funny the trash that we can watch and consume as humor stains our consciences and it turns our sin into potpourri. Here, it's a dead flower, but it smells nice now. It's not funny. It tricks us into thinking that sin is fun and games and it desensitizes us to it. We don't feel the weight of it anymore because we can just brush it off. We need to be careful about what we consume, meaning media or the way we think and what we engage with. And is it saying sin is funny? And are we buying into it? Sin is also not a personality trait, friends. How many times do you hear or maybe you say, well, Timmy's gonna be Timmy. Or I'm just speaking the truth. It's sin. You are using your tongue to cut others down. That is sin. Sin is not a game of comparison. A couple weeks ago, we had our first political debate, one of many to come. And I'm not harping on debates, but there's something that happens there, right? What's happening? No one's presenting what they want. They're just pointing fingers at each other. And we do it too. We politically debate our sins. I started with that, right? It's not what I do, it's what they do. It's not what I've done, it's, it's that. That's really bad. No, what David's saying is, friends, we have to own our sin. He says, it's my transgression. It's my iniquity. It's my sin. I have sinned. He owns it. So this week, I want you to write this question down. How are you tempted, or what tempts you? Is it the music you listen to or the shows you watch? How are you tempted or what tempts you to minimize your sin? We need to constantly be aware and have our antennas up looking for these things. We have to rightly understand our sin, brothers and sisters, because it has serious consequences. Right? Verse 11 is kind of a jarring verse for many of us. Right? With our New Testaments, we read this and it's just, wait, take, your spirit, take not your spirit from me. What, what's he mean? How do we understand that? What we understand is that sin has serious consequences. It changes us, our ability to enjoy things. It turns what should be joy into shame, what should be thanksgiving into mumbling and grumbling. And it also changes the way the Lord will use us. Now, all those who he starts a good work in, he will surely bring the completion. But if we perpetually live in sin, we will be sidelined from God's good work. Meaning, you're on the team, friend, but you're benched. Just like he's not going to use David as king anymore. His spirit will use somebody else. It is those that are filled with the Spirit that he uses. We see this displayed throughout the book of Acts. The deacons, full of the Spirit. Stephen, Acts 7, full of the Spirit. Barnabas, Acts 11, he's full of the Spirit, and he's exhorting the saints to faith. The point is, all of these instances, none of these men are more saved than the others. They, don't, they are not like in an elite group, They are full of the Spirit. The Spirit uses certain people. In Acts, or Psalm 51 is showing us there are things that will inhibit the Spirit from using us. 1 Thessalonians says we can quench the Holy Spirit. You can't stop him, but he just won't use you. You want to do good works for the Lord and to display his glory. Friend, don't be living in sin. It has serious consequences. In a world ready to minimize it and with hearts ready to repress it, we need to wake up and see sin for what it is, for what it does and what it shows is true. And when we do, when we understand sin for what it is, we will be convicted of it. Or David calls that contrition in verse 17, a contrite heart a broken spirit because we understand it's not just that I messed up, it's that I have sinned against God. Knowing that sin is filthy, that we need to be washed and that we can't do it ourselves, that is what confession is. And here is the best news in all of history. Whether it's your first time or your 10,000th time, God Has steadfast love and is abounding in mercy for those with contrite hearts and broken spirits. He has grace for you. We have to understand sin for what it is. But, friends, there is divine oxyclean ready for you. It is God's ultimate cleansing. We see this starting up in verse 1. David cries out to God for mercy because he knows something about God. He knows that God has steadfast love and is abounding in mercy. He knows this because of Exodus 34. This is is an important connection. So in Exodus 34, Moses asks God, God, I want to see your glory. And when he says that, he's asking God, God, I want to know who you are. I want to know what you're like. Who are you, God? And so he, God puts him in the rock. And God passes by him and he declares, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David's three problems. David knows that God is a God who is abounding in mercy. It's who he is. He's a God of steadfast love. It never wavers. It never shakes. It never gets weak. That's who he is. And what can this God do? He can create in you a new heart, and he can wash you clean. Look at what David does, starting in verse 7. So verses 7 through 12 are his requests What he asks God to do because of his sin. And we see that first he asks God to cleanse him. Cleanse me from the filth of my sin. And when he is done, he won't just look new. He will look better than new. He will be whiter than snow. More pure than you can ever imagine. All the tint that sin puts on his conscience and all of the stain that sin puts on him is gone. And not only does God cleanse us, friends, he changes us. Look at David's request in verses 10 and in verse 12. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wants full forgiveness. He doesn't doesn't just want his sins to be forgiven. He wants full forgiveness, which means he wants to be forgiven and he wants to be changed. He wants to be new. He wants his heart to want the right things. He wants the right wanters. He doesn't want to sin anymore. He wants to want God. And this is the promise of God to us in Scripture. These aren't just a prayer of David hoping it will happen. God tells us, We read it in our assurance of pardon. God tells us this is what he will do for the wayward, the sinful, and rebellious. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. You will be forgiven and clean And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That's the wanters. That's the heart that doesn't want God. That's the heart that hates God. And I will put my spirit, I will remove that heart and I will put my spirit in you, a heart of flesh, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. And in Jesus, God accomplishes this. Titus 3 says, when Jesus came, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, right? Because God doesn't want our sacrifices, verse 16. He isn't delight in how sorrowful we can be. He isn't delight in how how sad we can make ourselves or how much we can fear getting in trouble. He didn't cleanse us because of those things. He had cleansed cleansed us because of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death on the cross, his blood spilt, cleanses us of all of our sin. The stain of sin is cleansed by the blood of Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead and is alive affirms and attests to the fact that the heart that he gives to you is alive and will remain alive until he comes back and forever more. He has accomplished this through his death on the cross. It's through the blood of Jesus that you can be cleansed. We just sang, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is a flowing crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. We can't add enough adjectives to this grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. All who are longing to see his face. Will you, this moment, his grace receive? Friends, if you would not say you're a Christian, I already asked you, do you understand what sin is? And if you do, you must confess it, but you can confess it as well. Because he is ready, able, and willing to cleanse you. Verse 17 says that God not only will he not delight in sacrifices, then it later says the broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That's contrasting to delight, meaning he doesn't just like, okay, you have a contrite heart. He's like, you have a contrite heart, come to me. I'm ready to cleanse you. He delights in cleansing you. So come to him. And Christian, don't you know this to be true? Is this not your ultimate hope that everything's built upon? One of the Bible's top hits, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed. Christian, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God said, not guilty, you're mine, in the name of Jesus Christ. You have been washed. And the beauty of Psalm 51 is that he will wash you again. He will wash you again and again and again. He's inviting you, Christian, to confess your sins because you have an advocate. Jesus is standing before God the Father and he says, I died for him, Father. I died for her, Father. Forgive them. Jesus will never move and he will always stand before God asking for your cleansing. He will cleanse you again. Sometimes, even as Christians, we struggle with confession and repentance, don't we? We think it's just kind of the gate to the Christian life. Once I get through the gate, now I'm doing the Christian life. Repentance and confession is something I did a long time ago. Or maybe... We struggle sometimes with believing the hope of the gospel, that he will cleanse you again. But this psalm confronts the first and comforts the second. Christian, when you leave this morning, I want you to know, I want you to leave knowing there is no sin too big for forgiveness. An old Baptist confession of faith states, I love this quote, an old Baptist confession of faith states, although there is no sin so small, but it deserves condemnation. Yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring condemnation on them that repent. Every sin deserves condemnation, friend, but no sin cannot be forgiven by Jesus' blood. The last couple of weeks, I've been thinking and meditating on this psalm and I just continue to come back to Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. So Christian, the prodigal son is about you. He's already a son. Of the father. And he goes away. He strays. He rebels. He doesn't obey. And he's covered in filth. So he thinks, so I just go back to, if I go back to my father, maybe I can be a servant or a slave. But they're treated better than how I am now. And he goes back. And when he's on the horizon, the father sees him. And he runs so hard. He runs out of his sandals to get to his son. And he grabs him. And he kisses him. And he wipes his tears and the filth from him. And he strips him of his worthless and muck-covered clothes. And he cleanses him again. Christian, he will cleanse you. And he will cleanse you and cleanse you. There is no sin so great that it cannot be pardoned. You have not lost your sonship. He doesn't want you to run from him. He wants you to come to him and confess. So a couple more questions for you to think about this week. Think about them in small group or think about them over coffee. Friends, first of all, how do you minimize sin? That was the first question. Secondly, what causes or when do you doubt that you can repent? What causes you to doubt that you can repent? When do you doubt that you can repent? And then another question, how can you grow in your practice of confession? Because that is our takeaway, friends. We are called to confess, and we are able to confess. We are able to live the lives the Lord has called us. The Christian life is to be marked by repentance, and we can do it. The three takeaways. First, you should have confession in your private prayer life as a Christian. Every day, multiple times a day, you should confess to God how you need him because it still lingers because we are prone to wonder and we need him to bind our hearts to him. Private confession. Secondly, this is all brought about because of Nathan. God uses Nathan to go to David and confront him about his sin. Before Nathan gets there, there's no hint of David really having a contrite heart about what he had done. He is marrying Bathsheba. Who is your Nathan friend? You need to have a fellow believer who can speak into your life, arguably somebody that is among your family here at Chapelwood, that you can speak into their life and you both allow each other to speak hard words to each other to warn each other of sin, to know each other's weaknesses, and to remind each other of the hope of the gospel when you do sin. Who is your Nathan? And then thirdly, as a local body of believers, we should be a confessing and repenting people. This confession, Psalm 51, the little text at the top, the superscript, to the choirmaster. This is a public psalm. The psalm is intended to be used in worship. We just used it in worship, right, in our confession of sin. And friends, that is not a rote thing that we do every week that you can just kind of read the words and go through it. No, we are inviting us together to confess our sins, to meaningfully and intentionally pray these words together. And there, we should be praying in our hearts as we read these confessions and identifying sins that we have done against our brothers and sisters in this body. We are to confess our sins publicly as well, or I should say, communally, we should confess our sins together. And then, the result of this repentant life, this beautiful life, of unknowing the filth, but celebrating the cleansing, what's the result? Joy. Joy. Salvation's unmatched joy. In these last few verses, David shows us how he will respond to God's cleansing, and it can be summed up with just that one word, joy. He is, he knows that when he is cleansed, he won't be able to close his mouth again right? First he says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It's like whenever you see something beautiful, you see this amazing sunset, what do you do? Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? Or whenever you find a really good bargain or something, you're like, hey, look, I went here and I did this and I got this. Look, if you go there, you can get this too, right? You can't help it. You have to tell people. And who's he going to tell? people just like him, transgressors, sinners. Friends, the other thing that this does, is a side note, the other thing this does is it changes the way you look at everybody because everybody is capable of receiving the mercy of grace because you don't have to do anything to get it. You receive it through faith. So there's no one that you're not gonna tell about this. Everyone needs it and everyone can receive it His joy is gonna propel him to teach everyone. Secondly, verses 14 and 15, at the end, the second line's in both of those. He says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness and my mouth will declare your praise. Not only is he going to be bursting with joy and just pointing it out to everybody and telling everybody else where to get it, he's gonna be singing. He's gonna be singing. Friends, when we see our sin for what it is and when we receive God's merciful forgiveness, when we really understand the miraculous nature of our salvation, all we can do is sing. All we can do is sing. I can't do anything else because I can't do anything to get it. All I can do is celebrate it with the words and an acclamation of God and who he is. All we can do is sing. And then finally, at the end, David transitions and he talks about the city Zion of Jerusalem. Don't let this throw you. It's kind of like a, where are we going now, David. That's another psalm. What's going on? Um, in the Old Testament, it's very common. The king is identified with the people, and the people are identified with the king. So if you go read 1 Kings and Second Kings, you'll see when the people are wicked, the king is wicked, or vice versa. There's this relationship between those. And so when he's talking about Zion, he's, he's still talking about himself, but he's talking about the people he represents as well. But his point in these verses is that the result of confession and repentance is a return to right worship of God. So before he was a leper and he couldn't worship God rightly. But now he and all who follow him can go back into the presence of God in the temple and worship him. We can return to right worship. The result of following Psalm 51 for us, friends, of acknowledging our sin for what it is and of confessing it, the result is joy. It is joy The salvation of the Lord, the life of repentance, it only leads to the joy of knowing his goodness, the joy of sharing his grace with others that need it, the joy of receiving his mercy and singing of his praises, and the joy of fellowship with him.